Today's scripture reading comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 1 through 16. Before hearing it, let us pray. Gracious God, come to us in these ancient words and enable us to hear your promise in new ways. Amen. Just as a note, all of our potential scripture readers opted out of this passage today. I cannot imagine why. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You're already laughing. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylonia. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Ockham, and Ockham the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we visited Mark's house, a place that is smaller than the rest, strictly functional. There's no outward signs of Christmas anywhere in sight. No tree, no lights, no wreath, no shepherds or sheep, not even a baby. Because in Mark's gospel, he's worried less about where Jesus is born and more about where he can be found. Today we move along to the second stop on our holiday home tour, this time visiting Matthew's house. Christmas at Matthew's house is everything Mark's isn't. Most notably, it is the biggest house around. It is absolutely enormous. And it's loud and it's boisterous, and when they start to sing carols, there's almost always a little good-natured disagreement because some people really love the old hymns and others prefer something a bit more modern, just a bit. And at least one person, at least one person will say, well, you know, back home we always do it this way, 
We always sing these songs, and someone will tease them about that, and someone else will laugh, and someone will raise a glass, and it's just so joyously loud that if you were actually to stop by and ring the doorbell, well, they wouldn't hear you. There's too much of a good time going on, so they've just left the door wide open. And every so often, someone looks over and sees a new person standing in the doorway, and they just bellow, well, come on in. What are you waiting for? And maybe I shouldn't bring this up, I don't want you to be worried, but I do want you to be prepared that Christmas last year was so raucous that Matthew received a citation (laughs) disturbing the peace, the charges read. So now Matthew's house has a bit of a reputation. That wild party that Matthew throws, though, is not just any holiday party. Christmas at Matthew's house is a family reunion. A family reunion where everyone is invited, the entire family, and I mean entire. I think that's what Matthew means to communicate when he begins his Christmas story with a long and complicated genealogy. It was a number of years ago now, but I was trying to make my way back to Michigan to see my family, and I was trying to make it before the end of Christmas Day so we could spend at least part of the actual holiday together. Now, for all sorts of reasons, most of them involving snow, I didn't make it. I had to stay overnight in a hotel, and I did make it to Detroit midday on the 26th. And I was a little grumpy about it. But when I got to my childhood home, I discovered that everything had been put on pause. The gifts were all still wrapped. The cookies, all still intact. My brother's middle child, Logan, he was quick to explain, oh, this was not our idea. He said, we did not want to wait. I think he said that with his head already inside of a gift bag. We did not want to wait, but Daddy said we had to because Daddy said it's not Christmas until everyone is home. Matthew would say the same thing, I think. That's why he includes all those names because it just isn't Christmas until everyone is home. And that's why if you look closely at that big tree at Matthew's big house, the tree that they gather around and sing around and tell stories around, it's a little different than these trees. At Matthew's, the Christmas tree is a family tree. A family tree for a family reunion. And he begins with Abraham, the patriarch of all Israel. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and we can't hear about Abraham without hearing God promise, I will make your offspring as many as there are stars in the sky. And we can't hear about Isaac without hearing God say, take your son, 
your only son Isaac, who you love. We hear that Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and we can't hear about Ruth without also hearing, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And we hear that Manasseh was the father of Amos, and we can't hear about Amos without hearing him declare that there will be a day when justice rolls down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And we hear that Aminadab was the father of Nashon, and we can't hear about Nashon without realizing we have absolutely no idea who he is, (laughs) that we've never heard his name before and we're not going to hear it again. He's apparently not particularly important. He's more or less a nobody. But even still, we can't get to Christmas without him because it's not Christmas until absolutely everyone is home. We hear that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And honestly, we can't hear about that one without, well, without wondering why Matthew chose to phrase that one the way he did. He could have just said that David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. That would fit the pattern, and it would, um, well, it would downplay a little bit of a scandal. I imagine that most of you have seen the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, if not in person, at least on TV. I think it must be among the most famous of Christmas trees, or at least the most well-documented. That tree, it is massive, and it is astonishingly manicured. The head gardener at Rockefeller Center, he's a man named Eric Paws. And he says that the search for the ideal tree actually takes more than a year. They are already searching for next year's tree. He searches the entire country, and the final 80 to 90 foot tall candidate is chosen because it has an ideal shape and color and majesty from absolutely every angle. This tree, Pause says, can have no bad sides and no imperfections. Matthew holds his Christmas tree, his family tree, to no such standard. Maybe that's why we hear that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Maybe that's why the brokenness of that situation is laid plain. Because it's not Christmas until everyone is home. And that includes the scoundrels, along with the saints. It includes everything broken, along with everything beautiful. And about that wife of Uriah, or we can call her Bathsheba now, about Bathsheba and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, Scripture is clear that all of those women, they are Gentiles, which is to say they are not Jewish, which is to say... They are outsiders. 
And by naming him the way he does, within that long stretch of names, Matthew draws attention to that. He makes intentional space for the interlopers, for the other. Because just in case you need to hear it again, at Matthew's house, it is not Christmas until everyone is home. And that's the story of Matthew's entire gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ isn't actually good news unless it's good news for everyone. So if you have ever been told that you aren't good enough, if you have ever felt judged by the world or even by the church, if you have ever been told that your faith is lacking or your sin is insurmountable or your choices are unacceptable, if you have ever been told that you come from the wrong place or you live in the wrong neighborhood, if you've ever wondered that your accent is too strong or your mistakes are too big, if you have ever felt too broken or been told that you are too broken, Matthew's Christmas story is for you. And in fact, if I understand it, what I think Matthew is saying is not only that the Christmas story is for you, I think he's also saying the Christmas story is incomplete without you. And there's one more thing about Christmas at Matthew's house. He holds that pattern of inclusion all the way through his genealogy, and he holds his cadence to so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But then at the end, when we get to Joseph, he breaks form. We hear that Jacob was the father of Joseph and that Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. It's interesting. We're given 40 generations of Joseph's family, only for Matthew to suddenly make it clear that Joseph isn't actually related to this baby. Now, the one who gives birth to the baby, well, the way Matthew tells the story, she drops in seemingly out of nowhere. She could be absolutely anybody. And maybe that's the point. But the father, you see, we typically tell the story that Mary gives birth to the baby and Joseph adopts the baby. But a friend of mine, Scott Black Johnson, he wonders if maybe it isn't a little bit the other way around. He says, what if when the angel comes to Joseph, what Joseph hears is not a command to adopt the baby himself, but rather a promise that he will be the one adopted, that Joseph and his entire family stretching all the way back to Abraham will be grafted into the family of God. What I think this means, what I think it means to celebrate Christmas at Matthew's house, 
is that we are all swept up in this gospel story. It includes every single blessed one of us, the expected and the unexpected, the righteous and the unrighteous, the insiders and the outsiders, the beautiful and the broken, the worthy and the unworthy, the sinners and the saints, everyone. And that inclusion, you see, that is God's business. It is God's doing, not ours. It is irresistible, though, in the most literal sense of that word. I mentioned before that Matthew's house has a reputation for disrupting the peace. I imagine you understand that now. It's never easy when all of humanity is brought together in one place. But I think Matthew would suggest that it only gets harder the longer we insist on living otherwise. Which is why if you spend Christmas with Matthew, you will hear a clear invitation An invitation to no longer be defined by our hurt, but by our hope. An invitation to no longer be defined by who we exclude, but by who we include. And an invitation to trust that no matter how messy our human story may be, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is still coming to claim every last one of us. That's why we lit the candle of peace this morning. Because at Matthew's house, at Matthew's enormous and expansive house, everything is possible. Everything is possible, so long as everyone is there. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.